Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Fasting. It's one of the best biohacks because there are so many benefits to your body and it doesn't even cost anything. Fasting can help you live longer, increase your brain power, and even turn back your biological age because it induces something called autophagy. Autophagy swaps out old or damaged parts of your cells with fresh new ones. There is now an awesome product called Spermidine Life that actually tricks your body into thinking it's fasting, which triggers autophagy without any actual fasting required. Spermidine Life is extracted from non-GMO plants and it's super clean. Fast smarter, not harder. Add Spermidine Life to your stack today, whether or not you practice intermittent fasting. Go to spermidinelife.us, use code ASPRI25 for 25% off your first purchase. If your everyday routine looks like mine used to, it includes some bloating and gas, trouble losing weight, digestive issues, and probably microbial imbalances. When I learned that my gut microbiome was directly linked to all that stuff going on, I knew I had to do something, but it was hard to know what to do. And that's how I found out about Viome and the Viome Full Body Intelligence Test. Viome stands out because it uses gene expression analysis, which is RNA, instead of DNA to figure out what my body needs. They even use information they learn about you to create 100% custom formulated supplements and personalized probiotics just for you. Viome gave me the information I needed to really upgrade my health. I've known the team at Viome for almost 10 years and worked with them on their recommendations. It's real science. Now, you can give it a try, too. Go to viome.com Dave and save $110 on the full body intelligence test. Today's cool fact of the day is that Tibetans can thrive in an environment with 40% less oxygen than there is at sea level. And if you're from Colorado and you think you're kind of cool and you survive on just a little bit of oxygen, 87% of Tibetans have a genetic mutation that lets them perform at high altitudes without adaptation to make more red blood cells. Basically, they just metabolize oxygen better than most people do. So I'm guessing it's that gene that helped a guy whose name I cannot pronounce, but I'm going to do my best, Cho Yang Ki, who was the first Tibetan Olympian, and he earned a bronze medal in 2012's 20K race walk. So basically, he didn't have to use EPO because he built it naturally, and that's badass. Another cool fact of the day, a bonus one today, is that I'm doing a new biohack using very short-term extreme oxygen deprivation to raise my own EPO levels, and I'm going to keep you guys up to date on that as things go on. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Speaking of EPO and things like that, today's guest is David Epstein, who wrote an amazing book called The Sports Gene. 
David is not just the author of that book, but he's won awards for like hard-hitting pieces on sports science and medicine, Olympic sports. He's an investigative reporter, 2014 TED speaker. And basically, if you're writing about sports performance and ways to push boundaries, you'll find David's name all over it. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be talking to you. I've wanted to talk with you, David, for literally six months, and I've been trying to schedule this. And all your writing and stuff is cool, but one of your skills is catching marshmallows in your mouth. That's true. And um, so it, that was the reason I want to talk to you. I mean, pretty much we're just going to talk about that. You know, thank goodness, because I've been waiting for somebody to ask about that, and, and <laughs> finally the day has arrived. I just want to know, are they organic? Uh, you know, I put more emphasis on that um, in recent years in my life, so most of my training time in marshmallows, they were sadly not organic. <laughs> nice. Uh, High-intensity marshmallow training is, uh, is actually, there's a whole book about that, but we'll get <laughs> off of marshmallows. Uh, let's talk about high performance. Uh, why do you care so much about it? Like, do you have some sort of thing in your life that made you a high-performance guru? That's a great question. I mean, the question sort of in my book in the sports gene came very much out of things that I saw or experienced. So I, I happened to grow up in an area outside of Chicago that had kind of this mini Jamaican diaspora. So there were all these young Jamaican guys my age, and it made track and field really popular at my high school. And we won, we won our conference championship 24 years in a row. <laughs> wow. Largely on the backs of these Jamaican runners. And you know, when I flipped open an atlas when I was like 16 years old and realized that's an island of two and a half million people, I sort of started to say, boy, what the heck's going on over there? And it's producing all these people that, that are my best friends and my training partners. And then I move up to a little longer distance in college. And now I'm meeting all these runners from Kenya, racing against those guys, learning they're all from one tiny town. And so again, I'm sort of wondering just what's going on around me. At the same time, I was training with a group of five guys, doing the same things day in, day out, eating together, sleeping together, training together, stride for stride. And we're becoming more different, not more the same. So I just sort of started compiling these questions through my own training about how these things could be. You know, and then being a sports fan and combining that with things like well, why can women's softball pitchers always strike out the best major league hitters? Just wondering. You know, I had all these questions that I never really let go of. So finally, you know, when somebody gave me the opportunity to take them on in the form of a book, I jumped at it. So you were a runner, and you're running against these Jamaicans, and I'm assuming they were kicking your ass left and right? <laughs> well, I'm pretty fast. I was a, <laughs> I, I ran at U.S. Indoor Nationals. Um, so in, in the sprints, they would usually get me. Once I moved up a little bit, then I had a, a lot of success, and then I had to face the Kenyans. So I moved up from the Jamaicans to the Kenyans. <laughs> Ouch. So you had like a little sweet spot where you weren't as long as the Kenyans, and you weren't as sprinty as the Jamaicans, and you, you could sort of – the comfortable middle was, was your precisely, performance spot? Precisely. <laughs> learning my place. So are we going to see genetic testing early in life to help people know what sports to do? Or are we going to like handicap for genes in the Olympics? Like, <laughs> like what, what's going to happen style. here? Yeah, that's a good question. So actually I was just interviewed recently because the Uzbekistan Olympic Committee has decided they're going to start testing children wow. um, for, for a suite of genes to, to predict who's going to become Olympians. Now they're what they're doing is it's, it's, it's not really going to work because the kind of thing they're doing is similar to what a lot of companies that are offering genetic testing to parents for their kids are doing. They're testing for things like the ACTN3 gene, which is a gene that codes for a protein found only in fast-twitch muscle fibers. So that's the kind that contract explosively for sprinting and jumping. And if you don't have at least one of the, the sprint versions of that gene, you won't be in the Olympic 100-meter final period. Like That's just a fact. 
But that only rules out one billion of seven billion people on Earth. And so it's incredibly nonspecific. And you probably knew that anyway. And you'd have a better genetic test with a stopwatch. So even though it's kind of sexy and avant-garde, they're really not actually going to get good information from it. You know, most, most traits are a combination of environment and complex networks of genes. And so I don't think we're going to see a lot of genetic testing quite yet because you're better off measuring physiology directly, right? Like you're talking about um, EPO levels and, and you know, hematocrit, the proportion of your bloodstream that's red blood cells. Those are things you should measure directly rather than looking at the genes that have something to do with them. You know? <laughs> I always tell people, why test for height genes when you could use the tape measure? Um, so uh, I that, think, that's brilliant, uh, by so the way. I, I do think there will be more – already we've seen people – being slotted into certain sports based on physiology, only in rare cases do I think that will um, come directly from genetic testing. More so, I think genetic testing is going to have an influence in helping people manage injury. Like we know there's a gene that predisposes some people to having permanent damage when they take concussions. And that gene is highly overrepresented among the former NFL players who are having their brains dissected. And so those people just don't have the same threshold for insult to the brain as other people do. And, and that's the kind of thing I think that we might see being put into use. There's another gene for uh, hyperflexibility. Yeah. Uh, and when you have that, your chances of getting like knee and shoulder injuries are just much higher. So maybe you shouldn't play soccer for competitively or pitch because you're going to spend a lot of time training and then you're going to get injured and it's not going to heal, right? That's right. Versions of the collagen genes, which yeah. are... What you, the body, people call it the body's glue, you know, holding together tendons and ligaments. And, and people with certain versions of some of those collagen genes are, are quite flexible, um, but also prone to, like you said, tearing tendons or ligaments. Some of them that have a, a really extreme version have this syndrome called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, where they're, those are actually like the people in the circus who are so flexible they can fold themselves into a box and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> those people just make me mad, those really flexible people. Right, there you go. So, if, if you're listening in the car, I just put my ankle behind my head. If you're watching on on uh, YouTube, then you just caught a view of my leg in a strange spot. Uh, yeah, I tend to be more flexible, but I wasn't always. It's partly because I take uh, enzymes that dissolve adhesions, but also I'm probably more flexible than average. Yeah, so, so some of those people, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily go as far to say that those people, you know, shouldn't play soccer, but I, I do think they should be, you know, exercise geneticists have started introducing the term prehabilitation, strengthening exercises they can do before injury because they might be at increased susceptibility, and I think that's that's wise. It's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, for my kids, I would love to have you know, are you likely to spend a lot of time uh, with knee surgeons if you do this kind of sport? And maybe, like, you should swim or lift weights or something else or wrestle or whatever. Yeah. So, like, knowing that is valuable. But when I go back to what's happening in Uzbekistan, I mean, the Eastern Bloc has a history of doing stuff, like, 30 years before everyone else. Like, I do whole body vibration. Like, behind me, that's the, my whole body vibration plate. That came out of the Russian space program where it, like it, it works. Like it increases uh, bone density in those studies, which is really amazing. And so that was like an athletic performance and a space program performance thing. Also, some of the first electrical stimulation stuff came out of Russia and East Germany, and they would knock people out, put a stick in their mouth, and then run all these currents to make them grow muscles, and they'd inject them with 
all sorts of crazy hormones and whatnot. But hey, it kind of won a lot of medals. So <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> uh, and those advances came at great personal cost for the people who did them. But we can still take advantage of them now. And I wonder if the you know sort of crazy sounding stuff in Uzbekistan is thirty years from now going to be like oh. You know, we can already pick out our 80% most likely to meddle people using this complex set of genetic variables and probably epigenetic variables. But we're going to get there. I, you know what? I, I think I think we're going to get there partway with genetics. I think we're going to get there partly just as we have a better understanding of physiology. But I think you're absolutely right. Some things that are being done early on that are kind of scattershot, some that work and some that don't we'll come to understand them. I mean, th we're approaching the $1,000 full genome sequence, and we'll come to understand some of these things a lot better. I mean, one of the, probably the most famous exercise genetic study of all time, one that I write about in the book, is the Heritage Family Study that looks at why people can be put on absolutely identical training and have incredible differences in the way that their bodies change. And in, in one section, segment of that study, where 98 two-generation families were put on sedentary people, put on five-month intense cycling training program spread across four university centers, controlled in the lab. You know, there was, they, they found a 21 gene predictor set that could tell who would improve in response to the same training. People had at least 19 versions of the, the good versions of these genes, improved the amount of oxygen their bodies could move three times as much who had, who, than people who had fewer than 10. And this kind of thing that can explain why there's no sort of cookie cutter training program, I think we can, rather than saying, hey, you have to go to this sport. We can tell people, look, this is why you're not getting a certain benefit from this training program. Let's try this other thing where you might get the benefits that you're looking for. And so I hope instead of moving toward trying to like pigeonhole people based on their genetics, we move toward trying to show them that there are more options and some that, that, that might get them where they want to go. You know, I, I try to, because I get asked a lot, you know, do you think this is sort of scary? You know, we're all going to be told what our, our destiny is. And what I think is, Rather than hiding from the information, the way to move forward is to find what differences between people are real, first of all, and then which ones are important, and then use those to try to get the optimal outcomes for, for every individual. Okay, I, I buy that. So there's going to be a, a set of interesting knowledge that we, that we can pick up there. And what are the things that we can do proactively? Like, can we grow new mitochondria? I mean, like, I, okay, so I have some genetic stuff. My whole life, basically, is like, okay, someone says you should do that, because I'm a hacker, right? <laughs> someone says you should do that, I'm like, watch me not do that. Like, like, there's that sort of little impish desire that's like, actually, you could probably break that if you just pushed it right there. <laughs> um, and, you know, that can be channeled for good, or you can really break stuff that way, and that's why we have black hat and white hat hackers. But when I... I turn towards my own body, I'm like, okay, so I have these strengths and I have these weaknesses, but I don't actually accept those. <laughs> so, like, what are the things that are lowest hanging fruit in the research you've done for your book that let people basically do things that they're probably genetically not supposed to do without getting hurt? Right. Well, I think for one, tailoring training based on muscle fiber type proportions and things like that. Like there are countries that are now doing this and they give all the athletes a biopsy. They look at, um, you know, some of the metabolic uh, qualities of muscle fibers as well as just whether those muscle fibers are contractile speed, things like that, whether they're fast twitch or slow twitch. Of course, that's breaking down kind of a complex spectrum into sort of simple terms. But And we know that those people who have these different physiologies, it's a zero-sum game. 
when it comes to muscle fibers. The more type 2 or fast twitch you have, the fewer type 1 or slow twitch you have. And training can make fast twitch fibers more endurant, but it doesn't make slow twitch fibers twitch faster, and that sort of limits your explosiveness. And so we know that people should be trained very, very differently based on those kinds of qualities. And, and sometimes people who have a really explosive physiology will just ruin their strengths if they train too much volume and, and things like that. And so I think looking at training to maximize what your physiological strengths are, and in some cases, for some people, that means less training. Like I, I write about a Danish scientist in the book who will, who will take guys who think that just training more is better. <laughs> look at them, they'll have a huge quantity of type 2 muscle fibers, and he'll say, like, look, you need to do a few sessions of really heavy lifting, sleep right after, as soon as you're done training, just go to sleep and start taking more days off. Right? And he took a guy who was sort of good and turned him into an Olympic medalist doing that, and then the guy went on Dancing with the Stars, and then he got elected to Parliament, you know, all this stuff because he had a muscle biopsy. And in Denmark, you know, you small country, win one Olympic medals, things like that kind of happen. He took another guy, a rower, a, a kayaker, actually, who was not quite making the Olympic team. He looked at him, he said, the guy's got all, you know, he's got like 90% slow twitch fibers in his shoulders. The guy gets beat off the line every race and he starts to catch up, but he never makes it in the 500 and the 1,000. So he tells him, move to the longest distance you possibly can. Instantly, the guy's world class, you know? Wow. So, you know, most people aren't going to get muscle biopsies, but we at least need to be taking sort of a trial and error and self-reflective look at ourselves and our training instead of just looking to whatever fad is working for our neighbor, basically. Now, the the biohacker in me says, well, shouldn't I just take myostatin inhibitors and run massive amounts of fast twitch electrical current over my muscles to encourage them to grow new muscle fibers? Like stuff like that isn't impossible at all. Like the myostatin inhibitors have been on the market with questionable safety and maybe you'll get cancer, but you've been able to buy them for more than a decade. Like, shouldn't we just grow more faster slow twitch to do what we want? Yeah, the only well, so for the as far as the electrical stimulation, that has actually worked in in rodents um, stimulating them electrically. But they actually have capacity to switch muscle fibers a lot more easily uh -huh. um, than humans do. And when humans were actually tested with that, you know, hooked up to electrical stimulation eight hours a day, it didn't work. Um, so so I'm, I'm I'm not sure that 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 route will actually work. Um, what I there's, think it can do is condition some of your muscles without you having to work as hard. I don't think it, yeah. it, there's no evidence it will flip the fiber type. As far as the myostatin. I think the most of the ones that are out there, like the, the I remember various types of like seaweed were, were out there for a while, haven't had good results when they've been really tested. Right now, there are a number of pharmaceutical companies testing myostatin inhibitors and folostatin inhibitors related protein because it might help mitigate muscular dystrophy. There's some promising results coming out of clinical trials, but nothing proven that's on the market yet. But if that if that does hit the market for muscular dystrophy, I mean, you better believe people are going to be using it for just normal muscle building. Absolutely. Well, well that, that's the perfect segue into, uh, you know, sort of the, the low-hanging fruit, obvious thing to talk about, which would be steroids. So you've, you've written really heavily about steroids in baseball. Um, okay. if, if you're not a pro athlete, say you're, you just don't want to be old, is, is there a case for taking steroids? I think I, I think there is, and I think the devil's in the details, basically. <laughs> I think a lot of the youthful effects that people attribute to human growth hormone are unproven, and since so few people take human growth hormone alone, it's really difficult to know what's doing what for them. Um, I think there, there, undoubtedly there are cases where supplemental testosterone is something that, that people should be doing. I think they should try to – they should – 
correct their sleep, their physical activity, their diet first. Yes. Um, because you should do that anyway, and it helps a lot. People do not pay attention. I mean, when I've talked to some pro athletes, you know, they they know sort of they've heard all this all this stuff about growth hormone, and but they don't pay any attention to their sleep. Right? They sleep four <laughs> hours a night. They're they're traveling like crazy, and then you show them the curve of growth hormone secretion if they get good sleep and like it's like earplugs in eye mask on going to sleep right because you can boost your own natural secretion of these hormones so i absolutely think there are times um when it's when it's appropriate for people to have testosterone replacement therapy or, or replacement of other hormones um i think that also there's some marketing out there that that's ahead of a lot of the science as well as, as far as hormone supplementation goes and and i think people should really learn a lot about what they can do naturally that's that's healthy for them in a lot of ways uh, before they just jump to hormone supplementation. Uh, well said. Uh, um, I've been involved in the anti-aging movement for more than a decade. I, I run the Silicon Valley Health Institute. I'm, I'm chairman. So for like 20 years, this group has had top experts in aging come in and give lectures about these. And yeah, if you don't take care of the basics and you go straight to hormones or drugs, like you're kind of missing the point about solving all the different aging things that can happen. Um, I, I have seen, uh, and my dad, I, I convinced him to go on growth hormone before an abdominal surgery uh, to correct like another previous surgery thing. And in six weeks, I, I've never seen just a dramatic change. I mean, his, his skin looked different. His energy was different. He lost a ton of weight. But, you know, he was in his, I don't know, he was around 60 at the time. And obviously his levels were pretty low and it was pretty amazing. Uh, in my own case, at 30, I tested extremely low on testosterone and actually very high on estrogen because my body is very quick to go down the estrogen pathways. Mm. So I went on with the help of a physician and prescription, normal dose, uh, bioidentical testosterone replacement therapy. And I was on it for about 10 years and about nine months ago or so. Like, all right, I'm going to see what happens when I go off of this because I've corrected my sleep. I mean, I've, I've written sleep hacking stuff and my diet's amazing for hormones and all that. And my levels have dropped to about a third of, of like the max level where they could be at my age. But my muscle mass, like I, I'm, I'm reasonably muscled for a 41-year-old guy uh, and I'm not having any negative effects from it. So I'm just going to see what happens when I'm not on it. But I'm guessing that I'll probably go back on it. I'm very open about it. People are always like, oh, my God, he's on testosterone. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> my levels have never been above where they should be for my age. But if you ignore that when your body's not producing it, I think you do so at your own peril. But if you're not working with a specialist or you're taking the methylated forms that basically break your liver, like you can die. So it it's such a complex topic, but I, I appreciate when people take the time to write about it as you have and looking at like the use in pro sports versus other uses. And um, we're still learning about it. Yeah. And you know, the fact that you're taking a kind of a trial and error approach to it, to, to see how you feel, like you said, your, your levels drop, but you're maybe you'll be asymptomatic. You know, there are a lot of, there are, there are a lot of factors. I think sometimes people sort of fixate on one number of a certain hormone instead of sort of looking at themselves holistically and seeing how they're feeling and how they're doing. And, you know, the structure of someone's androgen receptors has a lot to do with how, what kind of effect they get from supplemental testosterone or from their body's own testosterone. So there's a lot that goes into it that's more, you know, complex than just that one number that I think people fixate on a lot. And, and I, I always advocate for people looking at themselves sort of holistically as, as opposed to just a batch of, of numbers. 
The most important thing you can ask yourself is how do I feel? Because <laughs> yep. if the numbers are good and you feel like crap all the time and you're angry all the time, it, I don't honestly care if you have a six pack or you know you can bench press your most, but <laughs> something's wrong. Like right. so, that whole ability to to titrate your amount of energy and willpower every day is is important and it's hard to quantify, which is why we tend to ignore it in favor of you know ridiculous numbers like total cholesterol and <laughs> who cares yeah i mean and to, you know to go to your point too about like growth hormone what, one one thing that i think is unfortunate is i think it was and i've written about this before growth hormone was sort of became more restricted than i think the government meant for it to be when they moved it when they legislated it and it's kind of unfortunate because it would be nice if it was easier you know if we had a bigger body of research on it and that i think is kind of frustrating you know sometimes i think pro athletes can actually do damage when they use certain drugs while while saying you know while completely demonizing them and that affects you know legislators sometimes and sometimes we end up regulating things before that make make them difficult to research before we've really found out you know what they can be useful for and what they might be harmful for that i think is that kind of bugs me in some ways sometimes the, the effect that athletes have had on restricting or, or demonizing certain things that, that maybe shouldn't be. When you look at Formula One racing, they have all these amazing safety innovations and performance innovations, and 10 years later, like, they're in your Honda, right? Yeah. So, so there's this, like, high-performance engineering that you might wreck, you might die, and if so, it's going to be fire and everyone wants to see it, so they're going to pay you money for it. <laughs> but uh, we all benefit from that. And when it comes to pro sports... If you're on something and you never tell anyone, then no one benefits from it, and you still might die a fiery death because your liver can you know, turn into your kidney or whatever the hell else happens as a side effect from whatever you're taking. So I, I almost wish that we'd be like, all right, this is something that many pro athletes use. If you would just register what you're using on this thing, and you don't have to tell us till after the season's over, but we all get to know, uh, or even put it by a review board or something, I I feel like we would unlock so much knowledge about human potential that's currently just hidden because there's this kind of wall. We want fairness on one hand, and I admire natural talent. On the other hand, we want knowledge, and there's got to be some comfortable middle, and I have no idea how to make that happen. Do you, or is this just a bad idea? I, I, I don't know how to make it happen, and I don't, I don't see it happening from pro athletes, but I think there are so many, you know, because they they're governed by certain rules. And- yeah. They have a lot of disincentives, obviously, from being open in any way about that. Um, but but there are so many other people that are um, using hormones and various other drugs. You know, elite athletes are like the pencil tip yeah. of the market for this kind. Of, I think that's a common misperception among you know not you know that, but uh, you know for sports spectators uh, at large, that that's not what's driving the industry for these drugs. There's so few of those people. But I just I guess I just wish there were more. You know, there's the occasional doctor or scientist who sort of immerses themselves in that community and builds some trust and some rapport and does some research, but it's very, very rare. And I think that's that's a I think that's a missed opportunity. It, it is, and in my own path, there's enormous knowledge to be gained from like the bodybuilding and weightlifting and pro athlete communities because they're pushing human limits in ways that are so amazing. And their goal is like do whatever that sport is at any cost. And there's even a survey from a while back where they asked a, a bunch of pro athletes, like, if you could be number one in, in the world, but you're going to die in five years, would you do it? And a shockingly high percentage of people were like, hell yeah. Like, they're so focused, and I admire that. Uh, and on the other hand, 
I met my wife at the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, <laughs> where I'm not a doctor, uh, but I tend to go there because that's where the latest research is. So there's this like never die and then kick ass forever. And there's some overlap in the middle. And, and that seems to be where the neatest stuff is happening, where you want to look good, you want to feel good, uh, you want to live a long time and you want to kick ass, but you have to get all those variables together at the same time. And the doctors who are working on that front who talk to the pro athletes and then talk to like the anti-Asian guys who only eat, you know, 600 calories a day and are cold all the time. Like <laughs> there's something to be learned there. Uh, guys like Ray Cronus are, are looking at that, uh, looking at, you know, calories in, looking at cold thermogenesis. And I, I suspect that, that that top performance without harming yourself science has barely, barely even been done. The one thing I want to add about that, that study where the guy said they would take a – it was this, this survey where I said, well, you could take an undetectable drug. You'll win everything for the next five years, but, but then you'll drop dead basically if it's undetectable. I, I got really curious about that study because I would hear it cited, and the only – I could never find it anywhere peer-reviewed. The only place I could find it was in a Sports Illustrated article from like the 80s, and some researchers actually like a year or two ago tried to repeat it because it had never been peer-reviewed, and they, they did find some athletes like that, but the percentage was much, much lower. Oh, uh, okay. Um, so I love it that, that you know really, this that study. It doesn't really change the point. It doesn't really change the point, but um, anyway. No, it, it's awesome that, that A, that you knew what I was talking about, <laughs> and B, that you did the investigative journalism there. So kudos, uh, and thank you for that. It, it's awesome. Now, Stephen Kotler's been on the show. I, I've actually become friends with Stephen, the guy who wrote The Rise of Superman. He's yeah. the, the keynote speaker at the Bulletproof Biohacking Conference. Quick plug. Yeah. September 26th through 28th, bulletproofconference.com in Los Angeles. 37 amazing speakers, including Stephen. Flow genome stuff all over. But Stephen's like, okay, athletes are getting faster, better, stronger. It's because they've accessed the flow state, and here's the recipe for doing it, and here's how we can do it to you with a little bit of help from technology. In your TED Talk, though, you, you asked the question, or you posed the question, you know, are athletes getting faster, better, and stronger? And if people haven't heard your TED Talk, what's your answer? My answer is that in many cases, in easy, easily measurable sports, um, athletes have in many cases went through a period of, of explosive improvement and then sort of plateaued to the point where changes in technology make a larger difference than changes in, in human improvement. And, and at the top level anyway, and some of that is – in some ways I don't think it's, it's contradictory from uh, what Stephen says. Great – love his book by the way. Because so Stephen Jay Gould made a hypothesis about complex systems where he said that in, a, in complex systems, as people learn sort of to manage all the different variables, performance will sort of converge. And we've now seen that in basically every sport that's been contested for a long time where the top differences between performers at the top level are getting so, so, so small. And I talk about that in the beginning of the, of, of the TED Talk. And so the sports are definitely getting deeper with more people accessing the highest level of performance but the the records for instance are either not moving or in severely diminishing returns but then they're upset when there are big changes um, in technology or big or or big changes in sort of the way that we screen people for sports so one of the there, there's a section in the ted talk where i talk about the artificial selection that's occurred in sports for specialized body types and that's an entire chapter in my book called the big bang of body types and there was sort of this self-sorting in the late 20th century to put specialized bodies, you know, elite female gymnasts have shrunk from five foot three to four foot nine in 30 years. The proportion of men in the NBA are at least seven feet tall has tripled. So now if you know an American man between the ages of 20 and 40, who's at least seven feet tall, 
There's a 17% chance he's a current NBA player. <laughs> Forearms of water polo players have gotten longer in relation to their whole arm for a bit more forceful throwing whip. So there's this artificial selection improvement um, among all athletes as they learn the sports and they learn the right training regimen. And we've done so well at that in some sports that now the biggest changes come from from changes in technology and not the changes in the athletes themselves. And I don't think that's a bad thing, personally. I, I think sport, the, the technological component, first of all, I think having deeper and smaller differences between competitors is very cool. It means more people are getting to the higher level. And I also view a lot of this technology and, and talent identification as part of the creative endeavor of sports. Um, sometimes people ask me if it ruins sort of sports viewing for me, and my answer is absolutely not, not at all. In my view of the world, a better set of more aerodynamic wheels or a swimsuit with less drag uh, or an injection of a certain substance before a race are all fair uses of technology uh, as long as like people benefit from it. And in history, has there been another group of people that would agree with that? Like, What, what would the Greeks say, going back to the original Olympics, about doping? That's an interesting question because I have a little – my view is a little bit different on that. But, but the Greeks actually, they were not – like taking substances was kind of par for the course um, for them. What they really had a problem with was like bribing judges and that kind of thing, like that kind of corruption, sort of forms of favoritism and things like that among judges. And people who did things like that, they'd like – they literally would put statues of those kinds of cheaters outside of the Olympic Stadium so that people would like pass them when they came in so they'd be immortalized as cheaters forever. But the kind of cheating that they cared about was completely different, um, and, it, and it didn't have to do with, with substance use. Because I think um, – I, I believe they were taking all sorts of things for like you know, dulling pain or increasing aggression and, and so on and so forth. Interesting. So the the moral compass around that has swung, and I, I don't know that we'll ever realize you know, that there is a, a quantitative proof that this is the ideal thing. And there's a lot of emotion and a lot of uh, opinion and a lot of like the old puritanical roots of the U.S. come into this. So there are other things we can do for performance besides you know basically taking steroids uh, or the other things. What about the ten thousand hour principle? I've talked about that before. The idea is that you need to practice 10, something 10,000 times or 10,000 hours in order to get the neurological adaptation. Is that legit, and can you hack it? The 10,000 hours rule as a rule is, is not legit. Insofar as it is code word for lots of practice is, is really important, yes, absolutely. But that's been completely uncontroversial among sports scientists for quite a while. The idea that the sort of the strict version of the 10,000 hours rule that 10,000 hours of that there's no such thing as natural talent and 10,000 hours of practice is necessary and sufficient to make anyone an expert in anything is that's simply not the case it comes from a tiny violin study done on 30 violinists who were so highly pre-screened they'd already gained admission to a world famous music academy so this would be like you know it's what statisticians call restriction of range and it's the worst kind based on your dependent variable so it would be like doing a basketball study study of basketball skills, starting with only NBA centers, noticing they'd all practiced a lot and saying, therefore, only practice got them where they are, not practice plus being seven feet tall, right? By restricting that subject range, you, you hopelessly bias your study against finding any evidence of innate talent. And actually, Anders Ericsson, the psychologist of Florida State who did the work, that violin study, has been so dismayed with the portrayal of his work that he has a letter now linked on his faculty webpage at Florida State, the title of which is the danger of delegating education to journalists. <laughs> pretty, 
pretty ominous. So the reality is that there's the, there's quite a large range, and, and most the, so the ten best violinists in that study had an average number average number of hours of practice by age twenty were ten thousand, but most of them had not reached ten thousand. It was just an average, and some had gone way over. And there's actually quite a bit of variability, and that's what shows up in all studies of skill acquisition, like chess, which is incredibly dependent on the brain encoding certain patterns. It's 11,053 hours on average to international master status, but some people make it in 3,000. Some are still being tracked at 25,000 and haven't made it. And so there's, there's really this incredible amount of individual variation. So that blows out the 10,000-hour principle. And so I, I, I cheekily subtitled the second chapter of my book, 10,000 Hours Plus or Minus 10,000 Hours. <laughs> but, but I don't I think love that some, title. some people think it's depressing, but I think I'd make a case for people going through what sports scientists call a sampling period and reflecting on themselves and finding the best way to use what they have instead of saying, this is the path for every person and we're all going to do the same thing, we're all going to get there because that's been pretty blown up by, by exercise genetics and other aspects of sports science. Are there ways to accelerate it like, like that? How do you hack the training thing so you can do it faster? Yeah, well, so again, depends specifically on what you're looking for. Like, you know, in some endurance sports, it would be something as concrete as moving to altitude, for example. But let's say, um, hey, by the way, so before I go to that, just yeah. quick detour, that 10,000 hours study, one thing I noticed, it didn't report a measure of variance in the, in the hours of practice, so I had to ask Anders Ericsson for it. But the best group was also sleeping 5.4 hours a week more than the oh, lower more? Group. Okay, so, cool. I think you said 5.4 hours a night, and I was going to dance a jig, but all right. No, no, more per <laughs> week. So, so this, this could very well have been the 5.4 hours rule study well, let's if things a, had gone differently. Uh, let's write a book, David. We'll call it the sleep effect, and we'll use just that 5.4 number, and we'll like create a whole wave of sleep. It, it'd be amazing. <laughs> the 5.4 hours rule. I'm ready for it. But one thing that shows up – so I write briefly but not super extensively about the groaning in talent studies in Netherlands. They're really progressive about sports science, and they've been tracking kids in a variety of sports from age 12 to the pros, like elite, you know, Netherlands has been second and third in the last two World Cups, population of 16 million, so they do a great job with uh, their soccer development. And one thing they found is the kids that learn skills more quickly when they practice are the ones who, if you, you see them in their, their research videos, they're going up to the, to the trainers and going, well, I've already mastered this drill. Like, why are we doing this? Like, what? which of my weaknesses is this working on? Like, I want to try this other thing because it's harder for me. They look like they're being insolent 12-year-olds, but they're really – they are self-assessing constantly, figuring out their weaknesses and their strengths, what sports psychologists call self-regulatory behavior. They're constantly looking at themselves like an experiment. They learn they, – they end up assessing their weaknesses much more similarly to how the coaches do than the other kids, and they continually improve. They don't plateau. And I think that seems to hold across all the sports in the Groning and Talent studies. These kids, who, they, they have certain physical traits, you know, that, but aside from that, they tend to be these kids who are taking accountability for their own practice. They become the orchestrators of their own development. And they're constantly assessing, coming up with a plan to work on a weakness, seeing if that worked. If it didn't work, revising and trying again and going through that cycle. And they, they get more out of their practice hours than their peers. So maybe we could be training the ability to self-assess or what I suppose you call self-awareness. So when you're more aware of how you're performing, either in relation to yourself or others, maybe you're better at making the small tweaks that change things. It's, it's definitely coachable, and they're, they're showing that in their studies. I have the citations in the – I have extensive citations in the back of my book, and some of them are there. And I think they're finding that in some ways the most important role of a coach 
is helping someone become that orchestrator of their own development who reflects on themselves and then then eventually passing their development off to them and letting them go you know and to go back maybe to a more concrete part of your question also there there are some ways that we know we can sort of hack certain skills like in golf there's something called the quiet eye period that's becoming a big deal it's actually in a lot of targeting sports so in the two seconds before putting tiger woods eyes fix on the back of the ball the spot where he's going to hit and they stick there in that same two seconds uh, a lesser golfer's eye will hit six different spots on the ball, and they won't know it. If you ask them yeah. where they were looking, they'll say, I was looking right there. But if you put tracking glasses on them, it won't be true. And they can be trained. They can't be trained explicitly. If you say, keep your eye there, it doesn't work. But if you say, well, we wrote a word underneath the ball, and I want you to read it before you look up after you hit this putt. It'll, over two weeks, it'll start making their gaze more stable. And, and I think the average is they take off about 1.9 putts per round in two weeks for people who are already pretty good amateurs. So sometimes, you know, I preach this finding what matters and what you can change. And things like Quiet Eye, we know matter to sports performance and turn out to be incredibly coachable. And so there's sort of, you know, cutting edge sports science is finding some of these things that you can then train really quickly um, and sort of accelerate your progress. I've been fantasizing for about seven years that someone would come out with eye tracking software that really worked for webcams that would just do it automatically because mm. you you can tell so much about how your brain works by how you read letters yeah. and just by all the things and I've been fortunate to work on a few different things where I did wear those and it, it's shocking to know what your eyes do and uh, you can learn an enormous amount about the whole nervous system there so the idea that someone took that and projected it into golf is is awesome and, and like that's kind of a hack it didn't take ten thousand hours. It took two weeks. And those results are showing up for free throw shooting, throwing darts, any, any type of targeting sport, basically. And there's a lot of cool new, new data coming in and, and research on how to train this effectively. One company called Right Eye that has made, it hasn't done quite what you've suggested, but they've made glasses that are like very unobtrusive that you can wear while training and they, they take eye tracking data and things like that. Um, so I think we're getting to the point where that technology is becoming so easily available that we'll, we'll, we'll learn. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I just put on my orange glasses. But the, the reason I did that is there are actually performance optics as well out there. Um, Oakley's making some. Nike has some contact lenses and things like that. So it seems like the eyes may be a very hackable area for athletic performance as well as just overall cognitive performance. I mean, the, it, skiers, for example, for years have used tinted plastic in their goggles that gives better better contrast really better they improve their contrast sensitivity basically when they look at the relief of the hill and that's really simple you know i know some places have tried to do that with contacts with sort of arguable success but no question that that's i think fertile ground for uh for finding some some tricks people uh people always ask me why i have this custom tint on my glasses this kind of rose orangeish color uh, it's because I had my brain tested for what colors make it relax the most. And when I wear those indoors, I have massive amounts of just better energy. Like I can think better. I can last longer. I have more endurance. And the woman who invented this stuff found like 48% of people have benefit from certain color ranges, and it varies by person, and you can test it. Uh, her name's Helen Erland. She's speaking at the Bulletproof Conference about this because it's almost unheard of, but she even has athletes doing this and people who you know, aren't dyslexic or autistic or whatever else. Those people benefit greatly from it, but it might be kind of weird, but there's probably someone out there who, you know, a light lavender tint on his or her eyes 
could radically change how they hit, how they throw, how they run. And we just haven't even done the basic work on that. So I, I feel like, like there's so much around eye tracking, around eye teaming, around eye balance uh, that I'm planning to do some more writing this year about it just because, not just for athletes, but just for everyone in every walk of life to get your eyes a little bit better, better trained is maybe more important than like lifting something heavy right away. That's interesting. I'd, I'd, I'd love to see that work. You know, as you know, I'm interested in, in individualizing treatments and training, and so that that's work I'd really I didn't know about, and I'd be I'd be really interested to learn more. Um, I'll hook you up uh, with Helen Erlin uh, directly if you'd Great. like. Uh, she's been doing it for 30 years, and I believe her work is is amazing. All of my clients who've who've decided to get their eyes tested have been like, "Wow, these glasses really work." And maybe I'll wear them. Maybe they don't look so cool, uh, but I'll wear them sometimes. And so I it's, thought yours looked pretty cool. Oh, looked cool. I would have worn those for fashion, but yeah, that may, might also say something about my fashion sense. That's a fair point. I, I just <laughs> I, I just tell people I'm in training uh, to be a rock star, and I usually get away with it. So <laughs> <laughs> if only I had the musical talent. Now we, we've talked about supplements and and drugs and electricity and eye teaming, but we have to talk about food. Uh, can a good diet? make you faster or make you hit harder or any of these other things? Like what does your work around the role of diet and sports performance say? I think it's a under attended to issue for the vast majority of athletes. Um, I think some of it depends on your ancestry to a degree, like what, you know, your ideal sort of ratio of carbs to proteins and fats and things like that should be. But the fact is most people don't experiment with it at all frankly, to try to find out what's best for them. Um, I think most people, sadly, most people would probably be better off spending two minutes putting any thought into what they're putting in their mouth. So we're starting at a pretty low baseline, I think, as as a society. But I think there's there's no question that the fuel that you put in the tank impacts everything. It impacts your body composition. It impacts hormone levels. Yeah, there's there's no question at all. And and for the most part, we're we're not paying good attention to it. it. It's hard to put kind of a blanket um, assessment on it, but uh, I think it's just an area where almost everybody can make some some life and fitness improvements. Almost everybody. You know, if if you're yeah. incredibly like when I, I spent some time running with the Kalenjin and marathoners, that's a minority tribe in Kenya that produces all the the best uh, marathoners. And to put their achievement in perspective, they they 17 American men. Uh, have run faster than two hours and ten minutes in the marathon in history, and 32 Kalenjin men did it last October. And that's, that's a minority tribe, 12 <laughs> percent of Kenya. Statistics and, like that are awesome. <laughs> like, how, they, how can you argue with that? <laughs> yeah, and, and they eat basically like an all-carb diet. They eat this yeah. this maize meal called ugali that I think would not be recommended for most people to eat an all-carb diet. That said, their one their ancestry is different, and two their physical activity levels are incredibly high and at altitude. And, you know, sugars can be a good fuel if you're about to go out and burn it right now, yeah. which they generally are. Uh, so so I think a lot of it also depends on, on your lifestyle and your needs. We have the, the Kittimans, too, who are eating, you know, 60 70% starch. So it's not like you can't do it, and there are huge gut biome issues we're just figuring out around the type of starch and what grows there and what actually turns the starch into fat in the gut. So I, I generally find that that in my own experience and in the anti-aging circles and all, that limiting carbs tends to make people leaner, at least people who live in the West and have normal Western lifestyles. But if you you know walk 20 miles a day, 
things are different. If you're training really heavy and you go on a zero carb diet, like some people, they just absolutely kick ass in ketosis. I've interviewed world champion athletes who like haven't touched a carb in a year. And then there are other people I'd say who are more common who, if they're on that regimen, like their blood panels don't look good and like performance suffers even if they can do it. So yeah, there isn't a one size fits all, but there are general principles that seem to work for 99.9% of people. uh, And I, you know, I, I think that we have enough knowledge between the, the pro sports fueling the nutrition side and then the aging side to say, well, there's at least the best practices. I, I like to think there are. And certainly in my own life, uh, 100 pounds loss seemed to help. One, that's, that's awesome. Um, one thing that bothers me is that there's so many – I think even a lot of people who have good intentions – are fooled because there's a lot of marketing of things to make them look like health food. You know, some things that aren't terribly unhealthy, like think about even people say, well, I'm going to start with a healthy breakfast. I'm going to have oatmeal. Well, most oatmeal is using rolled oats, right? So that's really, if anything, you, you should be doing steel cut oats, you know, so you, you, not not rolled oats because they're basically taking away the part of your digestive process that you want to act. And so it's going to, you're going to have a different kind of insulin spike and things like that. So I, it, it bothers me like how, difficult it is for the average consumer to to interpret the food that they're buying basically that that bugs me i, I see these gluten-free products now I'm like really you took out gluten you have like raw garbanzo beans and high fructose corn syrup and like like between the inflammatory response from the lectins and you know the insulin and the triglycerides like honestly maybe you just shouldn't eat whatever that concoction was and you should just eat like a piece of food that you can recognize. So yeah, the, the marketing has gone nuts and the regulatory side of that is make it just makes it really hard for food companies who do make healthy stuff. Like every paleo food company out there would love to put a heart healthy logo on their stuff. Cause it is, but it's the exact opposite of what gets heart healthy, which is like Cheerios. So I'm, I'm always just kind of like dumbfounded by that and realize that there's so many things that consumers don't understand that food companies are bound by. And it's it's a Byzantine set of things there, but at the end of the day, cheap stuff gets marketed as healthy, and that's just destructive for athletic performance and just for human health. Yeah, it's too bad, like you said, with the gluten-free products because that's people who are either need to or trying to make a change for their health, but they're ending up getting products that are just replacing the gluten with some kind of sugar or sugar yeah. substitute because they then want to make it taste good because it doesn't have gluten anymore. That's... Yeah, it's just it, it's not right, and it's it's confusing. And trying to take this incredible set of knowledge and then make it into something that you can do without having a degree or an enormous amount of time to research it, it's tough. And I think it's one of the reasons that you see pro athletes like eating, you know, Mike and Ike's or you know a bunch of cherry uh, whatever Twizzlers before they go out to play. It just feels like well, sugar, sugar's energy. Like I exercise, so I can eat sugar. But when you get like Kate. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Kate Shanahan, uh, who worked with uh, with the Lakers and like put them on a diet that's super high in fat. They're drinking bulletproof coffee, and like the difference in how most of the players felt was amazing. And some of them were like, "Screw that noise! I want sugar." So even at the the premier level of performance, there the differences are, are so profound that that I'm hoping that science and the internet and you know, citizen science and even just hard investigative journalism like you're doing will at least help to directionalize things, even if we never are exactly prescriptive. Um, are, are you hopeful that we're going to see improvements there, or is it just marketing is winning? 
I am very hopeful, I, and I think we will. I think it takes time. You know, I think it's like steering an oil tanker. You have to sort of start from 40 miles out from shore before. And there are going to be there are going to be people who are willing to and can invest a lot of their own time in researching this who are going to be ahead, of course. But in terms of sort of the mass of humanity, I, I do think so. I mean, I think already people are having to change their ideas about fat to a degree. And I think that's starting to seep into a larger segment of the community. Um, and I think that will continue to happen. You know, things like, I mean, eggs carry a major stigma for some people because of some epidemiological studies that I think have poorly controlled a number of variables. I mean, if, if, egg, if eggs turn out to do the worst things that some of, you know, previous epidemiological studies have said they do, I'm going to be in big trouble because I eat a lot of eggs. You know, qu- quality eggs, like, obviously not like things that are pumped full of hormones and all that kind of thing. But I do think, I think there's already starting to be some change and that we're going to see a typical pattern, which is some early adopters who are going to start sort of spreading information to their networks. And then it'll, it will take some time. And because it's, people hold certain stigmas about things they've heard without even really knowing why they do, but they can be really, really hard to change. Right. I think even as people hear different things about fats, that emotional part of their brain that that's embedded in, that really takes time to change. Even now, if you say coconut oil on the street, the first word that comes to people's minds is cholesterol. And it's like, I, I cook my eggs with coconut oil in the morning for breakfast. So, <laughs> uh, And it's a, a wise move because it's stable under heat. So if you're going to heat fat, you don't want to do it in olive oil, that's for sure. So you do it because you're educated, but the average person still has these weird correlations that came entirely from the American Soy Association's marketing campaigns. And so once that gets stuck in our collective consciousness, it's pretty hard to get unstuck. But I think the internet is starting to do that and uh, work like yours even is where people are like, let's look at the science, let's dig in and let's do it. And speaking of digging in, uh, we're coming up on the end of the show, David, and there's a question that I've asked every guest on the show. Okay, and I have one, one thing before we finish oh, that I want to tell it. you since you started talking about yeah. EPO. Can I stick it in now? Please, please, yeah. So so the the last chapter of my book, which is one of the, the coolest experiences I've had as a reporter, the main character is a guy named Aero Manturanta, who was the greatest probably endurance athlete in the world in his generation, Finnish skier, seven-time Olympic medalist. When I went to visit him, he's retired working as an Arctic, uh, a reindeer farm in the Arctic. And he was—he had a hematocrit, which is proportion of your bloodstream that's red blood cells, in the mid-60s in his competitive career. And just for comparison, you're not allowed to start the Tour de France if you're above 50. And he wow. was in the mid-60s. And 20, and he, he was, it was always thought that he was blood doping. And 20 years after his career ended, a group of Finnish scientists started noticing this in his family members. And it turns out they have a gene, a gene runs in their family that causes – a truncation of the EPO receptor. So the receptor is like a, like a lock. The, the hormone's like a key. When you put the key in the lock, it kicks off red blood cell production. And the, the, the truncation of their receptor took away the gauge that says, okay, enough red blood cells, stop making them. And so they oh. just had this runaway red blood cells. When I went to visit him, when, when he was younger, you couldn't, you couldn't tell, but now his skin has turned like all purpley and red. And so this was an amazing example of a guy who was sort of naturally EPO doped, which I thought was fascinating. And since you, you started off by talking about that, I just thought it'd be a cool. That, that's amazing. And so basically there was a hacked feedback loop where there should be feedback to lower this, but by changing the feedback. So there's, there's probably something you could do uh, with uh, an athlete today, maybe not to change the shape of a receptor, but there's probably something you can do to interfere with feedback loops in the body. 
it, it's crazy when, when you look at like the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and then all the other hormone systems that are affected. And there's hundreds of different feedback loops in there. And I think there's enormous, enormous science to be done around carefully modulating those so that you can do things rather than just taking thyroid hormone. You, know, you can actually look at the feedback system and where it's broken or where you just want to tweak it a bit. So the, the nuances of that, I've never been more excited in my whole life about the potential there because we've mapped out most of these now, which we didn't know 20 years ago. And now we're starting to understand the biochemistry and even some of the electrical stuff that's happening there and saying we can change it. Uh, so I want to raise my APL levels because they're actually a little bit low, which is kind of cool. Um, it turns out people who are exposed to certain biotoxins in the environment have lower EPL levels, and that can have all sorts of problems for like tissue oxygenation and athletic performance. So it's it's kind of amazing what small tweaks in the environment can do to a signaling system and then to what happens there. So now I'm all excited about EPO again. <laughs> cool. And that that's as you mentioned that that's it gets into kind of a scary point of endocrine disruptors in the environment, right? I mean that's a lot of chemicals we put into the environment most of which we know very little about how they affect human health. So. I, I really appreciate that you brought that up, too. Uh, a big part of, of the principles behind the Bulletproof Executive and just behind reaching a state of high performance, uh, whatever your game, is like, don't expose yourself to these like little bits of kryptonite in the environment when you can avoid it. Like I fly all the time. I know that I get toxins there, but I don't intentionally smear them on my skin after I get off the airplane because I don't have to, right? So... Just minimizing harm seems so intelligent if you recognize the harm in the first place. Um, there's the, the sort of meathead, you know, thump the chest and say, you know, well, if it doesn't kill me, it makes me stronger. And, well, hormesis is accurate, but, you know, when something damages your DNA every time you're exposed to it, it actually doesn't make you stronger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the if it doesn't make you stronger, that's like, you know, Orville and Wilbur were flying until they hit the ground kind of thing. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, nobody's been able to come back and say, well, it, I guess it did kill me. It didn't make me stronger. Uh, that's a very fair point. Like, oops, I guess I was wrong. And then you hit the wall. All right, here's our question. Okay. Given all of your research and all of your life completely apart from your research, your top three recommendations for people who want to perform better at everything, not just at sports, but basically people want to kick more ass at life, what are the three most important things that you'd offer them? Well, I'm going to pick things that I think can spread across all people so that they're not task-specific. More and better sleep. For most people today, I think that means um, controlling their screens before sleep time. As much focus as we have, I think highly motivated people often don't have a problem with, with getting themselves ready to train and, and things like that, but do sometimes in making sure that they, not just as a side thought, but budget in rest and recovery, cognitive and physical to what they're doing. I think that has to be part of the plan um, and, and is for elite athletes where they budget in recovery, whether it's time to allow physiological adaptation or time to allow your, your mind to regenerate. Um, I, I think those are, are things to focus on. And also, I would just preach in general a mindset where whatever you're doing, you look at yourself as a, as a scientific study of N equals one, right? One of the things in the reporting of the sports gene that blew me away was how truly different we are at the genetic level. And there's this quote I love by a guy who was a world-class hurdler and was the world's expert in body growth and development named J.M. Tanner. It says something like, because we all have a completely unique genome for optimal development, we would all have a completely unique environment. And, and you yourself are testing various things about yourself to find the optimal environment for yourself. And 
even if we have a an identical twin, we have some genetic differences from them. So the act of training or of trying to get good at something is a biological self-exploration that's beyond even what cutting-edge science can tell you at this point in many cases. So I think we need to look at that and continually self-reassess and what works for us because it might not be what works for the next person. I know that sounds like a very general point, but that approach worked for me in my training. And I, I became a better long-distance runner at 35 miles a week of certain target types of intervals than I had been at 90 miles a week of distance because I eventually realized that what worked for some other people wasn't working for me, and that made all the difference. And I think it can for a lot of other people as well. What an amazing point. I had the same thing. I weighed 300 pounds. I worked out six days a week, an hour and a half a day. I cut my calories to 1,800, and I stayed fat. And I felt guilty for a long time because obviously I wasn't trying hard enough before I hit on that same point you just mentioned, which was, well, like <laughs> if it's not working, it's not working. Try something else. And it actually requires a, a pretty big leap of faith because like, what's supposed to work? Why isn't it working? Like, what's wrong with me? And th there's a whole inner dialogue that happens. But uh, I appreciate you sharing that uh, as one of you know, the top three recommendations because it certainly changed my life to realize, well, wait, I'm just going to go with what works instead of what's supposed to work. Very well said. I mean, that's really one of the main takeaways for me in, in everything I do now that, that I'm lucky I had the chance to, to work on this book because it kind of gave me insight into those things. David, thanks for being on the show. Can you let listeners know a lot of them are driving and uh, all of them will get access to all these links and they can see the, the podcast transcript, but let them know the title of your book, where they should go to pick it up, your website and whatever other coordinates they should know about to hear about your fascinating work. It's uh, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Um, my site is thesportsgene.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at David Epstein. It's, it's on Amazon. It's at your bookstore. Yeah, and so and I just added an afterword to the paperback that's out recently. So I'm going to do something I haven't done before. If you loved this show and you thought it was amazing, you should actually go into a bookstore and buy the book instead of just buying it online. Because, well, the people who sell books really pay attention to that. And as an author of the Bulletproof Diet book coming out from Rodale December 2nd, big launch, it really matters when people pre-order and when people buy actually in bookstores. So support this kind of work because it's an awesome book uh, by going to the bookstore and buying it. Uh, and if that doesn't work, click buy on Amazon. That works too. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the flow. Uh, you got it. David, thanks again. It's been an awesome show. My pleasure. Uh, I appreciate it. It was fun to talk to you. And, and I, I'd love to hear more about you know, how you found your path sometimes. It's, it's really fascinating. And, and the, obviously the changes you made to yourself really ex awesome, just really cool. Well, we'll hook up next time I'm in Connecticut. If you like the show, please do me a favor and just go to iTunes and leave a review and say, okay. hey, this was good. It's really, really helpful. It'll help David if you like this episode. And if you like the show, it'll help other people find it. And this is one of the ways that the show is number one ranked in the health category uh, quite often is because people take the time to say thanks. Uh, the content's free. There's more than 140 shows now. And I spend a huge amount of time preparing for these in order to not waste your time when you're driving, when you're listening to this. So please say thanks. Just leave a review on iTunes. Let everyone else know that you thought this was worth an hour of your valuable time. Thank you. One of the things that makes you most bulletproof is the ability to focus. I don't mean focus for a minute or a few seconds. I mean focus for as much time as you need to focus to get the job done. For that, I've trained myself using the upgraded Focus Brain Trainer. 
by teaching yourself to consciously move blood to the front of your brain, you can teach yourself to focus effortlessly for long periods of time. I've used this technology extensively myself, and I used it with some of my executive coaching clients in order to help high-performance people become even more higher performance. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.